0: Welcome to Complexity Unpacked. This is our fifth episode in the Ethics Unpacked series, and today we're going to introduce theories and how they fit into our understanding of ethical reasoning. Part of this episode will also cover moral development and techniques of neutralization. So, to get started, let's understand what a theory actually is so that it's not such a daunting task to study them or learn about them. A theory is a collection of ideas designed to explain an event or justify a course of action. A theory is just a tool that enables us to identify a problem and plan a means for altering the situation. It is well substantiated and it's an explanation of an aspect of the world that can incorporate laws, hypotheses, and facts. A theory not only explains known facts, it also allows scientists to make predictions of what they should observe if a theory is true. Scientific theories are testable. A theory is constantly revised, as, you know, as is true for most scientific principles, as new knowledge is discovered through research. Now remember, policing occurs in society, so we commonly use sociological, psychological, and criminological theories to explain the interactions. Other relevant theories that apply to a policing context may include philosophical theories, biological theories, and subsects of psychology such as behavioral and cognitive theories. All of them help us better understand the situations we deal with on a daily basis. A theory is different from an opinion, and that's an important point to remember. I think too often people say, I have a theory about that, and what they really mean is I have an opinion about that. See, an opinion is a general idea that one has that is not necessarily testable or even provable. It's merely a position. Most often, opinions are unsubstantiated and they're not rooted in facts. A theory by comparison is an explanation of what is suppo- you know what is supported by significant evidence. It's generally testable, measurable, and repeatable. We use theories in policing to better answer complex questions or topics such as why crime occurs. We use them to explain criminal behavior. It's used as a predictive tool for primary occurrences of crime. It's used to forecast and predict future patterns of criminal behavior. Within policing itself, theories are used to better comprehend police behavior and decision-making. It aims to situate the police officer in society and understand how those functions and interactions play out on a day-to-day basis. It's a means to comprehend and address predictable human behavior, whether by the police officers or the general public. Now, there are multiple types of theories, but as a broad sort of categorization, there are speculative theories, those that attempt to explain what is happening. There are descriptive theories, something that gathers descriptive data to describe what is really happening. Or there's constructive theories, those that revise old theories and develop new ones based on continuing research. So now that we have a general idea of what a theory is intended to produce, or intended to do, let's look at our first one. Lawrence Kohlberg came up with the theory of moral development. And it's instructive in understanding the way we reason about things that are going on in our lives. So Lawrence Kohlberg developed a theory and, built, um, and that was built on and established through um, a significant longitudinal study. And what he was looking for was to evaluate the stages of moral development that people went through as they got older. He identified six stages of moral reasoning, and he grouped them into three levels. Now, at the first level, children primarily, to give you a brief overview, children fall primarily in the first stage, and they generally progress through the stages um, through their life course. However, that's not to say that children alone are in those early categories. We do see adults there too, just in smaller numbers. Actually, there's only about 10 to 15% of people that actually move all the way to the third level, the last two stages, right? That's the uh, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more detail in a second about that. But that is the highest order of moral maturity, if you will. Their findings indicated that criminals generally fell into the lower stages of moral development. Women tended to score higher than men. But the number one predictor for a person's moral development was found to be their level of education, not their age, not their gender. You know, the number one predictor was level of education. The more educated a person is, turns out the higher up they tend to be on the stages of moral development. So what are those stages? He broke them down into three stages. He called level one, preconventional reasoning. And that was made up of two stages, uh, a stage one and a stage two. Right? So this, like I said earlier, is commonly found among younger children. And there are a few adults, a small segment of the adult population that remains at this stage of moral development. So at stage 1 the focus is on avoiding breaking rules that would lead to punishment. It's very much categorized by egocentrism, right? So thinking about ourselves. And this and generally it has an, in, the people in this category have an inability to consider the perspectives of others. So rules at this stage are generally viewed as absolute and obeying them is primarily aimed at avoiding punishment. This is very much the I stage, right? I must do this, but I really don't want to get punished for it. That focus on avoiding punishment is the primary driver for moral reasoning at this stage. By stage two, we do begin to see the emergence of moral reciprocity. So, here's an important distinction though. While there is reciprocity, it focuses primarily on an instrumental, pragmatic value. That is to say that People at this stage are willing to work with others only insofar as it serves that, own, at that person's best interest. So cooperation with an end goal of bettering my own position, right, satisfying my own needs. When we get to level two, we consider that he, they label that conventional reasoning. So indi- individuals at the conventional level have a basic understanding of conventional morality and reason with an understanding that norms and conventions are necessary to uphold society. They tend to view morality as acting in accordance with what society defines as right or good. So, again, there are two stages within this level in stage three. At stage three, there's an awareness of shared expectations, which take primacy over individual interests. So here the definition of what is right follows the general stereotypic roles associated with being good. However, consideration of the generalized social system is not yet a primary consideration. There's definitely an emphasis on conformity and living up to social expectations. So they often call this the good boy, good girl stage. This is where we have a preconceived notion of what it means to be good. And we tend to act in accordance with that perception so as to fit the bill we want to be a good student so we do the things that good students do we want to be a good professor so we do the things that good professors do we're not motivated to do that for any other reason than it is what society expects of us and fitting in and being and conforming is a high priority at this stage at stage 4 again within level 2 conventional reasoning At stage 4, the person moves to reasoning and defining what is right based on the laws and norms established by by the larger social system. So importance is now assigned to fulfilling the role of responsible member of the community. This is the law and order stage. So law and order often become the key priority with the view that obeying the law is necessary in maintaining social order. Remember, there is no value judgment on whether this is good or bad. So this is not the idealized perfect state. What they were trying to do in their research was help understand how people reason and how they come up with their thinking. So what is categorized or what is evident uh, in this section is that there becomes this emphasis on following you know, a social script that works well. And law and order... And being a a productive member of the community is definitely a key defining feature of stage 4. Now, when you get to level 3, that's the post-conventional reasoning. So, at this level, remembering very few people actually make it here, right? The vast majority of the population end up in level 2. But at level 3, the post-conventional reasoning is characterized by reasoning based on principles. These individuals reason based on the principles that underlie the rules and norms but they reject a uniform application of a rule or a norm. So, meaning they're, they're really analyzing what's going on here, right? They're not accepting things at face value. At stage five, which is the first of the two sections in level three, the focus here is on the social contract. And the social contract uh, we will talk about a little later on. Um, at least we'll talk about social contract theory and how it was meant to explain our views on reciprocity. But here the focus is on the social contract and on individual rights. So people at this stage give significant consideration to differing values and opinions and beliefs of other people. The view is that the social contract requires consensus by society at large. So here you're seeing a higher level or higher order level of thinking and reasoning. And there's a significant amount of effort being given to consideration of multiple viewpoints. Finally, the last stage entails reasoning rooted in ethical fairness principles. Laws are evaluated in terms of their alignment with basic principles of fairness and abstract justice, rather than being upheld simply on the basis of their legitimacy within an existing social order. So this is the stage at which you get your cultural revolutionists, right? The challenging of the status quo and the changing of societies. Remember, it's often a very small number of people that end up spearheading and becoming the emblems of this level of social change. Kohlberg's contributions are significant in terms of understanding how people will deal with their everyday interactions. The way in which we reason about what we're going through helps us understand the choices people make. And that's why Kohlberg is still relevant to this day. The other one that has a tremendous value, even though their original application was meant to look at delinquency, is a theory that can help us understand our everyday action. Right? It's formally called Drift Theory, but more commonly known as the Techniques of Neutralization. Now this is based on the research and work of Sykes and Matza, right? and together they worked on a study of delinquency. They proposed in their research and their publication, Techniques of Neutralization, a theory of delinquency, uh, which was written in 1957, Um, a drift theory, also known as Neutralization Theory, that delinquents use a series of justifications to neutralize their deviant behavior. They found that delinquents usually acknowledge that their behavior was wrong, but distort reality to maintain that certain times and conditions make it acceptable to break social rules. The primary reason for the neutra- that the neutralizations are used are to justify negative actions already committed. So, in a sense, it's a learned pattern of responses that allow people to lessen their feelings of guilt and feel justified in the actions after they've committed them. In a current context, we can see the use and prevalence of this approach in everyday interactions. They are also internal rationalizations people use to analyze situations that might not ordinarily square with their own sense of right you know, and wrong behavior. When you think about the techniques of neutralization, if you can remove the word delinquency for a moment and think about every circumstance in your life when you did something questionable and then in the aftermath you try to justify why you did it, what you'll find very quickly is they tend to fall within one of the five primary techniques of neutralization that Sykes and Matza identified. So they are, first, denial of responsibility. Right. So the person doing the action in question, or has, the person who has just done the action in question, perceives themselves to be the victim of unfavorable social conditions or circumstances. So not him, or her, um, or they but everybody else is responsible for the actions they couldn't help it right the second is denial of injury here the person doing something trivializes or plays down his action um they don't recognize it as immoral it, sort of thinking about you know a time you took a chocolate bar and you went well nobody knows nobody was going to eat it nobody got hurt by me taking it that doesn't change the fact that taking it even though it wasn't yours was wrong, but it makes it feel a little bit better if you thought it was lost and no one was hurt by it. Right, which leads into the third one quite nicely. Denial of victim. Here the offen you know the person believes that the victim deserved the crime committed against them. Right? And this is used far too often. Right? When we perceive someone to be a bad victim, right? We have a certain conception about who makes a good victim and who makes a bad victim. So when somebody Who we generally disagree with or don't like, or we consider as part of an out group that is not like us, gets hurt through an interaction, we tend to say they had it coming. They deserved it. And what that does is it shifts the conversation from the action being wrong to whether or not it was deserved by this supposed victim, right? And that's denying that victimhood. The other one is condemning the condemners, right? So that's when you start accusing other people sort of of being corrupt instead of focusing on your actions and saying what I did was wrong you're going yeah what I did was wrong but what they do those people that are accusing me is so much worse right and it's shifting the conversation it's almost like creating uh, a diversion if you will right and if everybody else is corrupt or flawed or selfish or unjust then your actions can't be that bad so way of lessening your guilt about it lowering your responsibility Right in many ways, or finally, the last technique of neutralization that they identified is something they they called appeal to a higher loyalty. So in this one, the actor claims to have acted in the interest of others on the basis of orders or peer pressure, but never by their own will. So think about someone who does not report a crime or does not report a negative action by a peer, and they go, "Well, that's part of our culture," you know. We don't lie and we don't, sorry, we don't share uh, details, we don't rat anybody else out because our solidarity is more important than doing the right thing. There would be an appeal to a higher loyalty as an example. Remember, the techniques of neutralization are not a theory of crime, but the rationalizing behavior of a person after a deviant act has been committed. So, contrary to subcultural theories, this theory argues a general acceptance of social norms. That means people know, generally speaking, what is right and wrong. However, those social norms are weakened and distorted in the course um, of using the techniques of neutralization because it allows them to both simultaneously accept the norm and yet find a way to explain away why they violated it. And that is a key component of the techniques of neutralization. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now.